I'm Jen Kelly from In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. In Black and White is celebrating the footy finals with a mini-series about some of the hidden figures from the game's past. Hear the remarkable story of Tom Wills, the champion cricketer who created Aussie rules in 1858 as a way for cricketers to keep fit over winter. And colourful Collingwood captain and hero policeman Bill Proudfoot, who used his policing skills on the footy field to save an umpire from a violent beating by a mob of angry fans. And on Monday, tune in for the story of the man behind the medal, Charles Brownlow, to find out why he was initially forced to play under an alias and how his secret was exposed. Search for In Black and White wherever you get your podcasts. Like all dramas, or most of them, it turns on sex, death and betrayal. Katie never got over the fact that her husband, Brett Lesky, left her for her little sister, Belinda. When she goes outside later for a smoke, he follows her out and chats to her. This one's name is Brett Lesky. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Last week, we went through the disappearance and death of Jaden Lesky in 1997. Not so well known is the story of the family who produced him and who ultimately failed him. Today we'll hear that story. So where does it really begin and end the pathetic story of poor little Jaden Lesky? It goes well before he was born, well before that week in 1996 when he was born at the time of the Port Arthur Massacre. It goes back before the night he disappeared from Greg Damasovich's house in Newborough, which is part of Moey, in the winter of 1997. Back before the search for his body, a search that ran longer than the one for Prime Minister Harold Holt 30 years earlier. It goes back before his body was found. It goes all the way back to a story that started long, long ago and isn't finished yet. It's not only the story of a battered baby who became a dead child, but of where he came from, and that's from a place of broken families and broken hearts, shattered trust and stunted dreams. As I wrote at the time, all those years ago, it's an ugly soap opera with real blood and real bruises. It's a tragedy and it's a morality tale and it's a love story gone wrong. And like all dramas, or most of them, It turns on sex, death and betrayal. And it starts in this case up in the 1960s in the high country in the Tambo Valley at a little sawmilling town and farming town called Swiss Creek, which, as some people will know, is perched in the valley between Ensay and Omeo, the old high country town of Omeo. The local policeman, whose surname we won't use, had a daughter called Pam, And Pam falls for a bloke who works in the timber mill, which is the only industry in the district apart from sheep and cattle. If it's not love, it's the next best thing. And even if Pam's parents aren't too keen on the match she's made, there's nothing they can do about it. And she gets married to the young fella who works at the mill. Funnily enough, she wasn't pregnant, which is um, not always the way that 19-year-olds got married in those days, in that place. She got married in the Presbyterian Church in the main street of Swiss Creek. It was 1970. 
Two years later, Omeo Hospital, she has her first baby. She calls her Katie. Married life is all right for a few months. But to hear Pam tell the story many years later, as soon as she's pregnant with Katie, a man chases other women, he drinks and he belts her. She told me, I ran into that many cupboards and brooms. Once I told the truth about how I got a black eye and nobody believed me. Even his mother told me to get out. She'd put up with the same thing for 10 years herself. What Pam's mother meant was, get out of the marriage while you still can, while you're still young enough to make another life. But Pam didn't. And life went on such as it was. So between the drinking and the fighting and the domestic violence, there's reconciliations. And so Belinda, a second child, is born three years after Katie. By this time, the family have moved down to Bairnsdale, down the valley and across the plains to Bairnsdale. Then later they had a third child, a son called Glenn. But the babies don't make life any better, and nor do all the moves that the family makes. They make the first of many moves over to Myrtleford in 1977. And there, up in the country town of Myrtleford, Pam's husband goes to work in the bush at 3am on Mondays and he returns on Friday nights because he's working in the timber industry and that's the way they worked. She dreads the weekends because, of course, that's when her husband gets drunk, belts her, does all the bad things, domestic violence. One Monday, when he's gone to work, she hires a van and she packs it up with the kids and the furniture and clothes and she flees across country to a family friend at Marupna, which is just across the river from Shepparton in the Goulburn Valley. And then she moves from there over to Bendigo, where she rents a house. But of course, a few weeks or a few months later, Pam's husband finds her. He begs forgiveness. He promises to give up drinking. And he does. For six weeks. Pam works in a motel at night. They were nothing if not good workers, Pam and her husband. She ended up hating him, but she did say one thing for him. He always had a job. And Pam didn't mind a bit of work either. And at night she'd work in a motel and she'd leave her three children with her best friend, an alcoholic woman with four kids of her own and no man, no husband, because he'd gone on the missing list. One day when she came home from work, her daughter Katie, her eldest daughter Katie, who by this stage is eight years old, said to Pam, Mum... How come Daddy was in bed with Auntie B last night? It's a tough question. Pam answers it by dumping all his gear on her ex-friend's doorstep, including his guns. She says if you're so keen on him, you can have him, and here's all his stuff. She leaves him three more times. The last time she leaves him, it's a month before her 10th wedding anniversary. Her father, by now a retired policeman, is living at Lake's entrance, and he warns her, that if she ever takes the bastard back, he'll never talk to her again. This time, she listens. But life doesn't get much easier. She no longer has the violent husband, but of course she no longer has the income that he provided when he was there working. And so Pam and her three kids become part of the welfare class. She's unable to work essentially because she's looking after the kids and the kids grow up 
seeing mum drawing welfare payments every week and not associating the idea of adulthood with making a living. And so they slide in the course of a couple of generations from being the respectable policemen and wife type people to being battlers on the dole who aren't very keen on the idea of working for a living. Katie renames herself Katie. She adds a, a D and a double E where the T-I-E used to be. And at 14, she leaves home the first time. She's a rebel. She stays away seven weeks, and then she goes home to mum, because after all, mum would buy her smokes. This is after they've moved back to Myrtleford. It's the fifth of 15 moves they make in 20 years. They're a transient family. They're moving every other year. Katie turns 15 around the time they move to Hayfield, which of course is a timber town on the edge of farming country in Gippsland, just out of Sale and Mafra. She leaves Mafra High School in Year 9. She bolts back to Lakes Entrance, where, of course, she'd spent some of her childhood and where her grandparents live, and she lands a job in an old people's home. She said she got $75 a fortnight and thought she was rich. The job lasts nine weeks because one day her boss gets in an argument with Katie's grandmother on the golf course. And that was the end of the job. Katie's next job was sorting rubbish in a recycler's yard, but that didn't last long either. In fact, it turns out that the most constant payments in her life are her social security payments. Katie's 16 when she leaves home the second time. She takes the train from Nathalia, which of course is her mother's eighth home in eight years, and goes to Maui. What could go wrong? She'd met a girl from Maui on a previous visit. Everything I owned was at my feet and I had nowhere to go, she told me later. She finds the girl that she'd met on an earlier visit and she stays in her flat. Three nights later, they go to a party, armed with a flask of Jim Beam and a packet of smokes. And this is what she told me many years later when I debriefed Katie after all the terrible things that happened in her family. She told me the story of her life and she said that night at the party with the bottle of Jim Beam, we spotted three guys. We gave them marks out of ten. One was gorgeous, and we gave him bonus points because his flight was undone. Another got seven points, but he was married. She gave only three points to the third guy, but when she goes outside later for a smoke or whatever, he follows her out and chats to her. This one's name is Brett Lesky. This is when she meets Brett Lesky. They spend that night together. Two days later, he dumps her. A week later, she gets back with him, takes him back to Nathalia to see Mum, and she flaunts her independence by sleeping with him on the couch. Her mum, Pam, doesn't like uh, young Lesky, who's 16. She told me, I thought he was a selfish little mongrel. But the fact Pam doesn't like him is enough to make Katie determined to keep him. Of course, Pam notices that Brett Lesky, even then has got a roving eye, and he's having a good look at Katie's kid sister, Belinda, who's only 13, but as Pam said, she was only 13, but she had big norks. So uh, the pair, Katie and Brett, teenagers, 16, they go back to the Latrobe Valley, never a good move. Katie moves in with the Lesky family, who are then share farming at Yalorn North, just out of town. She pays $25 a fortnight board. 
She helps milk the cows four nights a week and on Sunday mornings. It's a wonder it lasts as long as it did. At last five months, after the inevitable split, Katie moves in with a guy she calls a big-time junkie in Murray. Of course, he beats her up, and then she goes back to her mother at Nathalia. They move to southern New South Wales, where Pam has a stroke that paralyses her down one side and puts her in hospital. After three weeks, Katie gets itchy feet and goes back to Lake's entrance. She runs into Brett Lesky at the local speedway and spends two nights with him at the caravan park. This, of course, is a reconciliation. She said, I tried like mad to get pregnant to him because then I thought he'd have to stay with me. But he leaves anyway, and she doesn't see him for another 18 months. It might have been better, of course, had she not seen him again. But anyway, fate has other plans. A few weeks later, Katie, as she calls herself, does get pregnant. But not to Brett Lesky. She gets pregnant to a drug addict who doesn't know about the baby boy who's born in late 1991 back in New South Wales. They all move to Sale. This is Pam, Mum, Pam, Belinda, Glenn, and Katie and her little baby, Harley. Father unknown. They stay with friends. Of course, it doesn't work. How could it? In Sale, Katie's down the street one day when she runs into Brett Lesky. He takes a look at the baby. He probably assumes it's his baby. She doesn't tell him it's not his. Later, after Brett sees his lawyer over some check theft allegations, he comes around to see her. It's pension day and, of course, the money's flowing. Katie buys a bottle of rum for the occasion. She's got plans for Brett. She told me later, I thought if we get pissed and get back on together, that's a start. This time, she does get pregnant, although she later miscarries. Brett's mother, Elizabeth Lesky, says they've got to get married. Katie, happy at long last, borrows a Deb dress that's too small for her and has it altered to fit. The Leskys buy the rings from a pawn shop and they set a date three weeks away. October the 24th, 1992. So there they are, young Brett Lesky, young Katie, getting married in the front yard of the Lesky's brick veneer on their new share farm at Denison, which is a farming district near Sale. A Baptist minister drops in to do the job. The reception is a barbecue in the backyard. Katie recalls spending the afternoon driving Brett and his mates around in her car getting pissed and stoned, unquote. She remembers that Brett is drunk by 5 o'clock and unconscious in bed, alone, by 8.30pm. Katie's bored and drives into sale, buys some beer and spends her wedding night drinking with a female friend. They spend the honeymoon on the farm, putting a new motor in Brett's car. Not long afterwards, according to Katie, Brett's parents, Mr and Mrs Lesky, who are fairly hard-working folks, kick him out for doing donuts and burnouts in front of their house. So the young couple go to his sister's at Morwell and then they rent a house back at Yellow North where they'd lived earlier. But of course, true love never does run smooth. According to Katie, Brett starts to dress up to the nines and he stays out late while she's home with the baby. She suspects he's seeing other women and she cries herself to sleep. 
She demands that he leave her enough marijuana to stay stoned all day to kill the loneliness. And of course, by this stage, she's pregnant again. But they stick together for a while, and in fact they have a joint 21st party in June 1993. It's a big blue that they have, but they go to Lake's entrance to try and patch it up. But it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Katie's eight months pregnant. She finds Brett, her husband, in a clinch with her little sister, Belinda, who's 16. She finds him in a back shed. Brett insists there's nothing in it. But that night in bed, he tells her he's fallen out of love with her. She abuses him and tells him to F off. He does, but he takes Belinda with him. Two weeks later, he returns with a carload of mates. And Katie says that when she stopped him removing his stereo from her mother's car, he assaulted her. Two weeks later, she gave birth to his daughter, Shannon. Katie never got over the fact that her husband, Brett Lesky, left her for her little sister, Belinda. If it takes her ten years, she swears, she'll split her husband, Brett, and her sister, Belinda. In the event it doesn't take her ten years, it takes her only four. So we'll jump the story to early 1997. By then, Brett and young Belinda have had two children, Brianna and Jaden. Katie, by this time with a third child, with a third man, is also coping with the knowledge that her daughter Shannon has leukaemia. But she finally hatches her plot. Katie knows that if she can get Belinda interested in someone else, Belinda will leave Brett, which will make Katie very happy. She's the Lady Macbeth of Moe. Katie picks out one of Brett's friends, a mechanic and panel beater who runs a panel shop with Brett in Moe. She calls this guy Grishka, but most people call him Greg. She can't even spell his surname, which is Damasovich. When she told me this story, she was very proud of herself. She said, I stooged Brett with his best mate. I kept tipping Belinda off about Grishka, about Greg. We had a code so I could tell her when he was down the street without Brett knowing. Brett would even mind all the kids while we went down the street. Greg knew I was using them all as puppets, pulling the strings. I said to him I didn't care if he stayed with Belinda or not as long as he split them up. Someone who knew Katie's bank PIN number stole her card and took $400 of child endowment payments from her account. She reported it to the police. Then she told Brett Lasky that the police were investigating the theft. He left the town immediately and headed off to Kalgoorlie. This allows Belinda to openly carry on her affair with Greg Demazovich, who seems fond of Jaden and often looks after him. For a while, Katie is happy, or as close to happy as she gets. Two months later, Jaden goes missing, presumed dead, and we all know the rest of the story. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. 
Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.